Welcome, everyone. This is your host, Adam Coleman. Today, I have Trevor Ellis, who is a certified financial planner with Northwestern Mutual in Greensboro, North Carolina. Today, we're going to talk all about the different considerations when it comes to life insurance. So, uh, Trevor, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me, Adam. It's good to be here. Well, I appreciate you joining. So obviously you're the expert on this. So I'd like to get your feedback on the life insurance policy. It's obviously a hot topic item for a lot of people. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. There's a lot of opinions that people seem to have on that, both good and bad. So I wanted to get your take on it. Obviously, Northwestern Mutual is a big company that handles a lot of the life insurance side, but you as a certified financial planner has a different role to that where you're not just selling life insurance. So, you know, you have a good foundation of the information behind the life insurance, but also the comprehensive financial planning piece, which I think is very important. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the details of this, in your opinion, who all really needs life insurance at this point? I think the important thing to remember at the end of the day is life insurance, just like any insurance, what you're doing is transferring risk. Right? So if you just think to yourself, if I were to pass away right now, right, I've, I've got a wife and two kids, my wife doesn't even work, so it's just me, that, that's a big risk, right? If I'm gone, my kids and wife are in a tough spot. <laughs> so I, I need life insurance. But anybody can look at that and ask themselves and say, hey, you know, is, is there a risk here? If I pass away right now, you know, is my family going to be okay? Maybe if I don't have dependents, then maybe there's not a huge risk. Maybe I don't have dependents, but I've got a ton of debt. There probably is some risk there. And so I think that's just the important thing to ask yourself is just like with any other insurance, if there's risk that we need to transfer, then life insurance can be an easy way to do it. It can be a great thing. Absolutely. And I mean, the big question that a lot of people have is they seem to understand the need for it, but not sure how much is necessary. So is there a good rule of thumb that you typically use? Yeah, it's a good question because I think this is one of the things that the insurance industry has done a really bad job of because <laughs> there's so many different pieces of advice out there and so many different ways you can calculate it. The general rule of thumb that we tend to follow now, now of course, is a general rule of thumb, but tends to be about 10 to 15 times your income. Now, of course, it's going to vary, right? And there's different ways to calculate it. And you can get as granular as you want, but that's what we tend to recommend. Do you factor in other things? Like what are the main considerations beyond the 10 to 15% of the income in terms of debts or mortgage balances, things like that? Yeah, so most of the time, that's just factored in. That's the total need, right? Now, again, just the average American family, right? 10 to 15 times income will factor all of that in. But what most people are considering is one, final expenses. So put you in the ground and pay for a funeral, right? Number two is paying off debts. So like you mentioned, making sure that our spouse or kids or whoever isn't left with a mortgage payment, that especially one they can't afford. Same thing with vehicles, same thing with consumer debt, just, just any kind of debt you know, that if it needs to be paid off that you're passing, then we need to make sure those things are covered. Number three is income replacement. So if you and your spouse are both working and you're used to having 100 grand come in the door, if we're cut to 50, that's going to be a pretty substantial difference. <laughs> so deciding, you know, all right, well, let's replace that 50 grand or, or a piece of it for X number of years. And then number four is 
we we call it final wishes right so if you had aspirations to pay for your children's college or you wanted to give your niece and nephew some seed money for their first house or for college or whatever it may be then those things seem to be factored in as well does that factor into the equation like inflation because obviously you know if you got a half million dollar policy 20 years from now it's obviously not going to mean as much as a half million dollar policy today it does. And, and there's a couple different things to factor in, right? Because when we when we put together a financial plan for clients, we'll actually put together a piece of that as a life insurance analysis that shows here's your income, here's what assets you currently have, insurance that you currently have, here's how it looks, right? We're XYZ amount short, or hey, you're great, you look awesome, you've got plenty of coverage in place. So we'll run it and, and make it a little bit more specific to clients as opposed to just, yeah, you know, go out there and buy 10 times your income, hope it works out. <laughs> Not, that's a bad rule of thumb, right? As I mentioned, we use it a lot. But we'll factor in two things. We'll factor in inflation and we'll also assume that debts are paid off and then you invest that money. Right. But another thing to consider, right, is the hope is that over those 20 years, we're not staying stagnant. We're continuing to build up assets. The 401k is growing, IRAs are growing, the home value is going up, and we're paying the mortgage down. And so, of course, the hope is 20 years from now, we probably don't need as much life insurance, right? That, that risk that we were transferring is much less because instead of 400000 on the mortgage, now we only owe 150, And we've, we don't have 200000 in our 401k, we've got 600000 so that risk of you passing away has gone down significantly. And that gets into the general phrase of do with term insurance and invest the difference. So a lot of people use that to compare whether you should go term insurance or permanent life insurance. So maybe that's a good segue. So I guess what's, you know, that's the big debate, obviously, that a lot of people have is should I just go term insurance or should I go whole life or some other version of permanent insurance? And there's not a lot of middle ground with those opinions. So walk us through what are the differences high level of term life insurance and permanent life insurance? Yeah, yeah. So that's where I was going to start. It's kind of how they differ. In my opinion, I, I tend to sit on, you call me a fence sitter, right? But I, I don't think either one is necessarily good or bad. They're just different. They accomplish different things. I actually personally own, own both. But term life insurance, the insurance industry is very creative with the names, right? So term life insurance, it lasts a certain term, a certain amount of time. The most common policy out there is it's going to be a level term 20, right? which just means that you buy a certain amount of coverage and it's enforced for 20 years. Your premiums don't change. The coverage amount doesn't change. After that 20 years, it expires. And you either have to apply for a new policy or in some cases you can extend it, but the price goes up. But at the, at the end of that 20 years, it's, it expires. People love term life insurance because it is super affordable. Unless you've got some major health concerns or things, you know, for the average person, it's, it's going to be very, very affordable. It doesn't move the budget a whole lot. People tend to not like it because it, it's just an expense. And at the end of the day, most of them don't ever pay out. Just like home insurance. Nobody buys home insurance hoping that their house burns down. 
Same thing with life insurance. Most people live past the 20 years or the 30 years or whatever it is, which is good. That's what we're hoping for. <laughs> right. I mean, it's something um, like 99% of them don't pay out or some kind of crazy high statistic, right? Yeah, it's it's like 96 or 97%. Right. It, it, it's way up there. And of course, not a reason not to recommend it, right? For those 4% of families, I mean, that's total game changer, but... <laughs> right. But that's why it's so affordable, basically, right. is the risk there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so permanent life insurance, I always say there's there's two main differences. One, it doesn't expire. And two, it's an asset, right? It's something that you can use. There's a cash account. We call it an accumulated value is the fancy term for it in the insurance industry. And that accumulated value can be tapped into before whenever you want, whatever you want. So people tend not to like permanent life insurance for a couple of reasons. One, it's going to move the budget a whole lot more. It's a lot more expensive to the tune of about, this is an average, but about 10 times more expensive than term life insurance, right? So this is a big, not just a decision we make offhand, right? It's a big difference. And two, because people tend to compare it to the stock market and it doesn't return as much as the stock market. Right? People love it because it's an asset. Right? It's something that they can use as opposed to just feeling like we're shelling out all this money for insurance that we're hoping we never use it as something we will use, right? whether that's the death benefit going to our spouse or kids or charity, or, or whether that's the cash that we use. So those are the two main differences between where it fits. Now, I will say about 95% of the time, I will recommend clients start off with term life insurance. And here's why. At the end of the day, what is most important when it comes to life insurance is that you have the right amount of coverage in place. And I always tell clients, if you passed away tomorrow, your spouse is not going to call me and say, Trevor, the worst thing happened. You know, Johnny passed away. What type of coverage did he have in place? I was just curious. I mean, they're not going to care at all. Right. <laughs> they're going to call me and say, hey, how much do we have in place? Are we going to be okay? They're not going to care if it was universal life or permanent or whole or term or, or anything else, right? So term life insurance doesn't move the budget a whole lot. It's easy to get in place. So just always start there. Most companies will give you the option to convert it to a permanent life insurance policy once it's in place anyways. So if, if that's something you want to look into or desire you have, then you, you've got the option just by getting term life insurance in place anyways, but then you'll have the coverage in place instead of sitting around trying to decide which one you should get. Right. right. So almost always recommend we start with that. Right. Permanent life insurance, there's a few places where it can be a really good fit. The most obvious one is if you're going to have a big estate tax issue, you should probably have some permanent life insurance, something that doesn't expire. Now, that hasn't been a big topic lately because the estate tax exemption is like $27 million or something ridiculous right now. Right. <laughs> but it is set to lower in two and a half years. So it's just something to keep in the back of your mind. That's one where I think it makes perfect sense, right? Number two, one where it makes a lot of sense is, and where we'll use it a lot, is if you have a child with special needs that you know you're providing care for and 
they're probably going to need care for their whole lives, right? And you want to make sure that their sibling that's taking care of them or the guardian or wherever they end up going just has some cash to cover those expenses, things like that. So again, just a transfer of risk. If you know someone or something is going to be left with a giant tax bill or a child to take care of, and you want to make sure they have that money, then that's where it can be a good fit. And then the third place where we will use it a lot is we always like clients to arrive at retirement with at least 36 months of cash reserves. Of course, we love the stock market, big fans, <laughs> hence my career choice, but the stock market doesn't always do what we want it to. There, there are going to be times where it goes down in your retirement. On average, the market drops about one out of every four years. If you have a 30-year retirement, that's a lot of market downturns. Uh, so we need some place where we've got some safe dollars. And to be clear, this doesn't have to be permanent life insurance. But if you're young and healthy and it's a good fit, then it can be. Right? Where we've got that accumulated value in the policy that's not tied to the stock market that we can use during those times where the market drops 40, 50%. What's the difference between that and just having like a separate cash account? Because obviously the big, the difference would be the cost. So if you go term, pay less each month, use that difference, maybe don't invest in the stock market, but throw it more into something safer, money market accounts or something like that. How do those two compare with maybe the rate of return or any other additional considerations when it comes to the cash value on the whole life piece? Yeah, so that's why we tend to use it for those young. And if you are young and healthy, now that's that's the key. <laughs> and there's a few reasons why it kind of has a bad name out there. This is one of them. It's because the life insurance agent that wants the sale isn't going to tell you you have to be young and healthy and qualify at a good rate for this to work out. They just want right. to make the sale. But assuming that's the case, then those rates of return can be more attractive than say a money market account or a CD or anything similar that's going to be safe, safe dollars, right? And number two is you get tax benefits. Life insurance, the cash in the policy, the death benefit is obviously tax-free if you use it, but the cash in the policy, that growth that you get each year is not taxed, right? It's tax deferred. So just like your 401k, right? right. You don't get a tax bill each year from the company that manages your 401k, it grows tax deferred. Life insurance is the same way, right? So if you have a savings account, just for an easy example here, with $100,000 in it, and let's say it pays 5% interest, you earn $5,000 of interest throughout the year. But you didn't really, because the bank's going to send you a, a 1099 at the end of the year, and whatever your tax rate is, right, you're going to have to pay some taxes on that. So 5000 minus your taxes is four grand. That same 100000 in a life insurance policy, you don't have to pay that $1,000 of taxes. So the 5000 goes straight towards that accumulated value, and then compound interest continues to do its thing. But that's why we like to do it, right? Is one, we've got that death benefit. Number two is that cash can be more attractive, assuming we qualify for it, right? That's the tough part. So we don't do this for all clients by any means. But when it is a good fit and they can qualify, then we've got some cash that'll be growing at a pretty decent rate, considering there's little risk. 
And then three, we'll always try and put on some different long-term care benefits as well. So we can plan to cover those costs in retirement, which is a conversation for another time. But. <laughs> right. No, that gets into a lot more detail for sure when you're dealing with the long-term care writers and all that. But uh, I guess jumping back to the cash piece, is it clearly defined what the return is based on or what the return is when it comes to the cash value account? a really good question. And, and for the most part, it is. Right? Now, just like anything else, there's never going to be like, oh, you know, this is exactly what it's going to do over the next 50 years. <laughs> but the insurance company will show you there's two components to this. There is an interest rate, just like you would have with a savings account. And then there's what's called a dividend. Now, this is kind of the key piece, right? And this is the other biggest reason that whole life insurance has a really bad name. And I tend to agree with this because about 95% of policies out there are just not good. And the reason is because there's, there's actually only three companies out of all the life insurance companies in, in the United States. There's only three that I would ever sell or purchase a whole life insurance policy from. And I won't get into what those are. But the reason is because they are mutual companies, M-U-T-U-A-L, mutual companies, right? So just like when you go out and buy a stock, you become a part owner of that company. That's what you do when you're purchasing a stock. And one of the benefits of that is you get a dividend. As that company makes money, they pay out some of those earnings to the owners as a dividend. Mutual insurance companies do the same thing but they're mutual because the policyholders are the owners of the company so those policyholders get a dividend every single year and that dividend does way more than the guaranteed interest rate does so those three companies mutual companies that's the most important thing in my opinion when it comes to looking if you're going to be considering a whole life policy look at a mutual company uh, but that dividend that they pay each year, they'll have a dividend interest rate, but it's going to change over time. Right? So right now, most companies are at about 5% dividend interest rate. Interest rates have gone up a ton. <laughs> if they sustain that, then that would actually be a really good thing for a whole life insurance policy because that interest rate is going to continue to go up. Right? Interest rates going down, same thing, it works in reverse, right? It goes down. So they've been 5% for a while, just because interest rates have been super close to zero for years. I mean, this is like crazy time that they've shot up so high, so fast. <laughs> but we tend to target that by the time you get to retirement, those policies are earning at least four and a half, five 5% cash on cash return. Okay. So it's not tracking to any particular investment or index or anything like that. It's more internally based for each yep. company. Right? Okay. And is that fairly easily accessible information for people uh, that are trying to compare these options and also trying to compare whether it makes sense to go with the whole life versus just investing? Can they see that number and go, I think I'm comfortable investing it and getting better than whatever the stated interest rate is. Is that a fairly easy thing for them to look at? Yeah, super easy. Any insurance agent or anyone you talk to should be able to just pull that up in about 30 seconds and just, just show you exactly what it's done. If Perfect. they're not showing it to you, it's probably because they don't want you to know what it is, which means 
we're not looking at right a red flag at that point. So yeah, that's part of the consideration of who you should get the <laughs> policy through, regardless of what you do, whether it's term or whole life. Obviously, there's other parts of permanent. So like we've only talked about permanent insurance and we mentioned whole life. There's other aspects of permanent insurance. So maybe touch on that and where do those fit in? Are there ever any times where you would go like a universal route versus just a whole life route? Yeah, and th those are the two. Uh, yeah, I say permanent a lot. It's kind of a general term, right? The most common are whole life and universal, which are just kind of subsets of permanent life insurance. Right. Right. Theoretically, neither expires, so they're permanent. Just like anything else, it totally depends. Right? There are going to be cases where universal life insurance makes a ton of sense and cases where it's the worst thing you could possibly look at. <laughs> Same thing with whole life insurance. There's going to be cases where it's a, a perfect fit and cases where it is the worst thing you could possibly purchase. The, the main differences between those two is one flexibility. Right? So whole life insurance, it's going to be very just cut and dry, whatever you purchase, that's pretty much what you're going to be paying. Right? So if you're putting in a hundred bucks a month, then you're going to be putting in a hundred bucks a month. It's not going to change. Universal gives you flexibility of premium, right? So if five years down the road, you lose your job and have a bad few months or something, then you can actually skip a couple payments. Or on the flip side, you could actually put in a little bit more. If things are going really well, you get a couple of raises and promotions, then generally you can put in a little bit extra. You could bump it to 150 bucks a month. So you've got some flexibility there. And two is the internal costs of the policy. So a whole life policy, we're paying the same amount every month, but the cost is never going to change. Universal it's set up to where as you get older, those costs increase over time. So my biggest caution and thing that I see people miss all the time is people don't, people don't understand that. And then all of a sudden we get to this point to where we get into our late 70s, early 80s, and even beyond. And all of a sudden, a policy that we had a bunch of cash in is just starting to deteriorate really quickly because... The cost of our insurance that was a hundred bucks a month is now a thousand bucks a month. It's just digging into our cash really quickly and, and can cause some problems, right? So that'd be my only caution is be, be careful. And I guess more than anything is just be aware that that's going to happen. Just like anything else, doesn't mean it's bad. We just need to understand that going in and have a plan around how we're going to attack that. Now, with the universal piece, a big thing that I keep hearing lately is this whole index universal life. So maybe speak to that a little bit and what the possible pros and mostly cons are for that. Yeah, we run into this a lot. <laughs> so personally, just to put out my bias here, I'm not a huge fan of it. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. But the biggest one, I mean, just the whole premise behind it is, hey, We'll give you market returns without any downside risk, which just is just as ridiculous as it sounds. I mean, <laughs> it just it doesn't exist, at least right. that I've seen. Yeah. So the issues with this, and to be clear, I think there can be a place for this. It's just like anything else, but I just don't like how it's been sold in position because that's always how it's sold. You'll get market returns with no downside risk, and that's just not the case. Right? 
the reasons for that is the biggest one is number one, uh, they'll show you, we're going to tie this to the S&P 500, which has done 8% of the last 100 years, which is absolutely true. Here's the issue is you're not actually investing in the S&P 500, right? That monthly premium you're paying, it's going into the insurance company's general portfolio. Yeah, so much so that an insurance agent doesn't even have to have an investment license to sell this. So it's credited based on the investment that it follows, but there's no investment actually happening. Right? And that's bad because actually going back to those dividends, right? if you look back at history over the past hundred years, the markets returned roughly 8%. About half of that 8% return is due to dividends. The other part is capital gains, but that half there is dividends. And since you don't actually own the investment, you don't get the dividends, which immediately cuts our return in half. And then on top of that, there's costs associated with the policy, which is not a bad thing, right? But the insurance company, in order to cover their risk, their exposure, right? Because they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart. <laughs> they're going and buying you know, these really complex financial instruments, mostly called options. And all an option does is it says, hey, if the market tanks, you're going to make money. So that's what the insurance company is doing is they're buying it. That way, if the market tanks and they promised you that you wouldn't lose money, then they've got money to cover that. Right? But that costs money to buy those options, which they pass on to the consumer. So we end up paying for it. So in my experience, they tend to return somewhere in the range of 2 to 3% which if you're looking for, and again, and I mean this genuinely, I think there's a place for that, right? There are clients out there that say, hey, I really need a death benefit that doesn't expire. And I want something that's doing a little bit better than cash. That could potentially be a good fit, right? But I hate, I don't like how it's sold. You're not going to get market returns with no risk. It's, just, it's not out there. <laughs> right. If, if it sounds too good to be true, then maybe take a step back, figure out what's causing that. And then that's the exactly. issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you said, it's sold to the, to the wrong people and it's not sold by investment advisors. And like you said, it's sold by insurance companies or insurance salespeople, which is the big difference. And, and that's kind of the perfect segue that I want to kind of finish up on is obviously insurance and like many other financial products have obviously been abused by salespeople because of the conflicts of interest related to commissions. So. If somebody's going through the process, they obviously know that they need life insurance, they need investments. What's the advice that you would give for somebody trying to avoid being taken advantage of and dealing with these bad apples in the industry? I think the best advice I can give, I mean, not too different from anything else, right? It's just get a couple opinions, talk to someone you trust that has knowledge. Now, now don't go to Uncle John, who's a plumber and say, right. hey, I'm looking at life insurance. How much should I get? Because they're probably not going to know, right? <laughs> Everybody has a family uh, member that sells life insurance, it seems like. So. <laughs> exactly, right? But get a couple opinions. Talk to a couple people. Right? Get a couple quotes from different companies and just make sure it's comparable. Like I said, my philosophy is generally to start off with term life insurance. I wouldn't just go out there and buy whole life insurance from 
honestly, anyone the first time you talk to them, right? Just because it's complex and it's expensive. So if we're going to be putting money into that, we need to understand why, and it needs to have an exact purpose, and we need to know whether that it's a good fit for us. So get term life insurance. It's not going to move the needle a whole lot budget-wise. It'll get you the coverage you need, and you'll always have the option later to change it if you decide to. But just start off with the basics. Start off with the basics, get a couple of opinions, talk to a couple of advisors and just see what's out there. And then you'll know pretty quickly, you know, if John gives me a quote of 80 bucks a month for a million dollars and Timmy gives me a quote of 40 bucks for the same thing. Well, let's find out what's going on here, right? <laughs> right. Well, and if, if one offers term insurance as the primary option and the other one is selling hard on whole life. That's usually the scenario that I see. It's not usually comparing, let's see who's got the cheapest term insurance. It's always these bad scenarios where they got sold some product that they didn't understand, or it was just sold to get a commission for the salesperson. So that's the piece that I think people need to obviously shop around more heavily is figure out why are you advising this type of policy versus another type of policy if they're that far off in terms of the benefits for each of them. You know? And like you said, obviously, with most of these, you don't have to be an investment advisor or representative. You don't have to have anything like that. You certainly don't have to have the certified financial planner designation. So those are things that you can obviously do to try to mitigate some of that risk is to at least get somebody that's gone through that effort to have the CFP and to actually do something besides sell life insurance. <laughs> There's people out there like yourself, like other CFPs that do insurance as well, you don't have to get somebody that only does life insurance. It just creates too much of a conflict of interest when it's set up that way. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been super helpful. If anybody wants to learn more information about you and to get information beyond this, whether it's life insurance or investment advice, anything like that, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Probably LinkedIn. Find me Trevor Ellis, Greensboro, North Carolina, or my email, trevor.j.lstrevor.j.ellis at nm, n is in Nancy, n is in Mary.com. Either one of those works for me. Perfect. Well, Trevor, I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.